Consider that old adage, what's in a name? What is in a name? Now, it's quite possible that's something you've never really thought about before, and that's fine. More than fine. Perfectly normal, in fact. But, I am not more than fine nor perfectly normal, and I have thought about this for pretty much my entire life. Forty years ago, when I burst onto the scene, back before it was popular to name your kids unpopular names, having a rather old-timey name like Gail in a sea of Lisas and Jennifers and Michelles made me feel different. Today, I'd fit right in with all the little Hazels and Marthas toddling around, but growing up, my name definitely set me apart. Of course, I had nothing to do with the name I was given, but because it was a little different, I felt a little different, and I looked at things differently too. So, what's in a name? If you haven't ever thought about it, let's think about it. Starting with some big picture analysis. All sentient creatures give names to the things in the world around them. Now, I don't mean to say that all animals make a great ceremony of bestowing names on things like humans do. For instance, I know my cats don't call each other Minerva and Ginny like I do. Instead, they identify one another through a combination of visual, scent, and sound cues. I don't claim to know exactly what those cues translate into inside their furry cat heads, but they definitely know who the other is, and just as important, who they are not. So a name, however we define it, denotes individuality. That's powerful. Conversely, names are also a product of community. As much as we like our notions of staunch individualism, Humans are, at their core, communal animals. Our broader identities are based on connections through shared cultural norms, which encompasses everything from language and gender to religion. Names connect us to those groups too. And lastly, names link us to a place in time. Just as my name might have seemed like a throwback to a bygone era during my school days, in a hundred years, those ubiquitous Jennifers and Lisas that sat all around me will sound as ancient and dated as the Adelines, Ednas, and Mildreds do today. Names follow trends of fashion and fortune, and are therefore excellent advertisements for the era from which one hails. So, if you enjoy parading through old cemeteries, and want to learn a little bit more about the people over whose remains you tread, names are a great place to start. They're clues, exciting jumping off points, like the cold open for an episode of Law & Order, where the two detectives have just arrived in an alley behind a restaurant and are standing over the body of a head chef, stabbed in the heart with a paring knife. The detectives ask themselves, who was this person? What were they about? What was going on in their life that brought them here when it did? And it always starts with a name. It gives us so many clues for information about not only a decedent's individual identity, but also their cultural and temporal identity too. 
Fun, right? And then, as the cold open draws to a close, Detective Lenny Briscoe looks down at the murdered chef and then back to his partner and says something campy like, Well, looks like someone's going to be late for dinner. Dum 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 I'm Gail Golick, and this is The Secret Life of Death, Episode 3, Relief. Have you ever been to Halifax, Vermont? If not, you should. It's located in the southeast corner of the state, in the triangle between the Vermont, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts state lines. It's just the kind of afternoon drive I'd like. Something that gets me out of the house, but not so far that I might be subject to a disgusting gas station bathroom at some point. The roads there go and go and go. A house here, a tiny village there, civilization melting into the forest. I hadn't ever been there before last summer, when I was invited to come down by a podcast fan to take a look at some cemeteries and gravestones in town, and I was delighted to find many a cemetery to look through. This little town has something like 18 cemeteries, which in itself will be the subject of another Secret Life of Death podcast. So, stay tuned to the website and Facebook page for info about that. I had so much fun exploring cemeteries in Halifax last summer that I went back this year and invited my friend Kate along. Um, I'm Kate Butt. I'm a friend of Gail's. <laughs> we hang out, we go on adventures. We're pretty rad. <laughs> we drive around and look at cemeteries for fun. I think it's fairly safe to say we are not that rad. Anyway, Halifax. Right on the Mainish Road, there was a lovely little plot. The Weeks or Wicks Cemetery. The whole cemetery is slightly triangular in shape and surrounded by a stone wall. This is a small family cemetery containing roughly a dozen stones. Some early 19th century slate, some mid 19th century marble, and some much later 20th century granite. The grave stones there are in pretty good shape though it's clear that there are several more graves that are missing markers. <laughs> Let's go check it out. <laughs> oh, look, they, they got some lilies. Oh, yeah. But there is one stone here that outshines all the rest. It is, without a doubt, the most beautiful gravestone I have ever seen in these parts. No exaggeration. Wow. That's amazing. I don't think I've ever seen a stone like that, ever. Oh, that's so cool. Could I, could I get you to read this for yeah. me? Yeah, if I can read it. In memory of Miss Relief, is that their name? Yeah. Wife of Captain David D. Town, who died January 7th, 1813, age 45 years. And I can't quite make out oh, the bottom. It says, may God 
Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's a little too. Oh, some of it's missing too. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, it's starting to flake. That relief clues. Wilcox Town. Her stone has an amazing design on the tympanum. The semicircular curve situated at the top of historic gravestones where the main motifs were displayed. Some of the things he was explaining, like you can tell this is the the willow. Yeah. The willow motif, in a, so it's a broken Right. Willow. It's a take on the popular willow and urn style. But the willow tree has been cut off and has fallen over. Sort of, well, you know, you look at it, he's like, oh, that looks like the man in the moon. But yeah. I guess the moon and stars motif me or reference eternity and at the top supposed to be her a crescent moon with a face in profile that little face whoa flanked on either side by 10 stars this number of stars so there's two three four ten and i feel like that means something too but i don't know sure yeah now this piece of gravestone art because it is art is incredible. It's beautifully executed and chock-a-block with symbolism. Today, remember, we're here to talk about the names on gravestones and not the art on gravestones. That will be the subject of yet another upcoming episode of The Secret Life of Death, so yet again, stay tuned. Back to relief. Now that's a name. I think even the hipsteriest of parents would be hard-pressed to dust off this heavy-handed brute. But the crazy thing is that Relief is a name I routinely see throughout historic New England cemeteries. And of course, there is a reason and a story to go with such a name. Relief is the perfect example to demonstrate what we were talking about in the beginning— about names being a window into the individual as well as the culture and the place and time of the name holder. A name like Relief comes from a very traditional and uniquely New England religious foundation, which is a polite way of addressing the kooky elephant in the room, the Puritans. That's not to say that Relief was a sanctioned Puritan name, quite the contrary in fact. but. It exists because of the Puritans and their dogmatic, uncompromising view of religious freedom in the New World. Agree with us? Follow our narrowly defined, restrictive theocracy without question, or to hell with you. Literally. Now, dissecting the minutiae of all the various religious denominations that came to be in the Americas can get confusing. The following condensed explanation is, for the sake of clarity and relevance to the story, not as commentary. The religious separatist movement in 17th century England and mainland Europe was an offshoot of the earlier Protestant Reformation, when the Church of England broke free from the perceived excesses and corruption of the Roman Catholic Church in 1534, as well as King Henry VIII of England's wish for an annulment from his first wife, Queen Catherine of Aragon. But, as time went on, some felt even the Church of England had become corrupt, and by the 16th and 17th centuries, the separatist movement emerged. 
Separatists wished to reiterate to the Church of England its original ideals of simplicity in practice, adherence to the scriptures, and the need for individual communication between the faithful and God that originally led to the Protestant Reformation. The Puritans were, by far, the most strident of the Separatists, and irked the Church of England so much that they were kicked out of their home country and set out to drift in a boat called the Mayflower in 1620. They landed in the northeast part of the American colonies and established settlements that would become the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The Puritans were hardline separatists, and though they wished for religious freedom and the right to administer to their community as they pleased, they were not terribly open to extending those rights to anyone else. Enter Puritan theologian Roger Williams. Williams a man who dared to think outside the confines and tenets of the Massachusetts Bay religious establishment, promoted such wicked ideals as separation of church and state, true religious freedom, being fair and conscientious while dealing with the indigenous Native Americans, and proselytizing abolition, all arguably Christian ideals, which promptly led to his excommunication from the Puritan-controlled Massachusetts Bay Colony for heresy in the 1630s. Williams escaped imprisonment, and worse, by agreeing to leave quietly, and was allowed to set himself up along the Narragansett Bay, a region of southern New England west of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which would later become part of the colony of Rhode Island. Williams might have agreed to go quietly, but he didn't stay quiet. He strayed even further from his Puritan roots and established the First Baptist Church of America. Now, the Puritans themselves were one of many originators of the separatist movement. But in southern New England, at least, they were the first European power to gain a foothold, and with it, fulfill their belief of divine providence that they were the only true believers, and therefore deserved to believe, govern, and behave as they wished. And so, they pushed forth, blind to the irony inherent in all tyrannical rule, that their own righteousness would sow the seeds of their undoing. Just as the Puritans' intolerance pushed Roger Williams to convert, so too did other dissatisfied New Englanders and their descendants throughout the Northeast. Beginning in the 1730s, with an evangelical religious revival known as the First Great Awakening, New Englanders looking for a still more personal, less restrictive relationship with their God began to convert to a variety of other separatist denominations. Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Unitarian, Universalism, Quakerism, etc. And over the next 150 years, with each new generation coming to terms with a rapidly changing world, two more religious awakenings followed suit. The Second Great Awakening, beginning right around the American Revolution, and the Third Great Awakening, around the Industrial Revolution. All of these Enlightenment movements, as they were known, played off people's need to have choices about their relationship with God and resulted in a dichotomy among these separatist denominations. Groups wanting more individual freedom in worship, or 
a recommitment to an earlier, simpler, better, more devout time reminiscent of the Puritans. Sound familiar? Either way, the point was, it was their right to choose. And one of the few things they could choose that would showcase any new beliefs was by what they named their children. Names became a very outward way to showcase a person's conversion and commitment to a new religion, a persistent tradition whose origins harken back to the instigators of hard-nosed religious fervor, English Puritans. Then, as today, people wanted to stand out among their social group, and when it came time for the faithful to name their children, they turned to a readily and perhaps only available book in their homes, the Bible. And depending on what end of the conversion spectrum you found yourself, there were biblically inspired names to suit. <laughs> like, obviously, you can tell that some of them are like a, bi a, a Bible inspired name right. for somebody that's not super versed in, in it all. I do wonder a lot of times where these names came from because they seem some of them seem very unique if if not slightly outlandish if <laughs> <laughs> I say so myself <laughs> for the last name like but so so knowing this a gravestone can tell you more than just a date of birth and death with a fun poem at the bottom the names can tell you a bit about the family's history of religious conversion. Were they part of the strict, moralistic Puritan Renaissance conversions? Or from the denominations that promoted love, openness, benevolence, and true personal freedom? Our subject, Relief Clues Wilcox Town, was born in central Rhode Island in the 1760s. Rhode Island, remember, was the colony founded by ex-Puritan-turned-Baptist Roger Williams. And not surprising, Relief and her extended family were also Baptists. But we could guess their Baptist leanings based on the name Relief. For true New England Puritans, who would later call themselves Congregationalists, would never have named a child such a gentle, shame-free name. Puritans went for harsh-sounding, consonant-laden, Old Testament Hebrew names, preferring those saturated in some grim biblical story. The 1880 book, Curiosities of Puritan Nomenclature, by Charles Bardley, sums it up well with a quote on page 62. No book, story, especially if gloomy in its outline and melancholy in its issue, escaped the more morbid Puritan notice. Every minister of the Lord's vengeance, every stern witness against natural abomination, the prophet that prophesied ill, these were the names that were in favor. For women, we're talking names like Mehitable, Deborah, Sarah, Ashsa, Rachel, Zipporah, Leah, Abigail, Asnath. And being that these came from women in the Bible, their names were meant to evoke the image of a woman who is either incredibly pious or entirely worthless, often both in the same name. Azuba, for example, was the name of a wife of Caleb, the mother of King Jehoshaphat, 
but the name itself means forsaken, deserted, and desolation. Huldah was the name of a prophetess in the Hebrew Bible, yet the name means weasel or mole. Men's names, though less of an assault on the name holder, were still an assault on the ears. Eliezer, Phineas, Bezaleel, Isaacer, Nehemiah, Jazaniah, which is somehow spelled with four A's. None of those names are what I would call beautiful or even pleasing, but the point was not to be beautiful or pleasing. The point was to prove the parent's religious commitment and hopefully inspire the same in the child. However, many of the other separatist denominations, Baptists included, favored grace names, such as relief. As certain religious sects and their benevolent underpinnings became more established, the names they inspired often reflected the duty or temperament the parent wished to instill into the child. These are from a group of names that are gentle, kind, even subtle. Rejoice, increase, accepted, thankful, grace, patience, content, rest, faith, hope, charity, love, mercy, prudence, constance. It does bear noting that it's no accident the vast majority of grace names were given out to women. We're still talking about a society where women had no secular rights. They couldn't vote or own property, etc. But herein lies an interesting historical juxtaposition. All three Great Awakening movements saw a marked rise in women's ecclesiastical rights. These movements were relatively egalitarian, and for the first time ever, a woman's experience and word was taken with the same weight as a man's. Because at their very core, the Great Awakenings were about the right for everyone to personally interact with God. No intervention or direction from church leaders required. No surprise that women from across the socioeconomic spectrum flocked to these revivals, converted, and began to exercise some freedom and personal choice for perhaps the first time in their lives. However, that freedom existed only within the realm of their religious community, and even then there were limits. Women could run a committee to raise money or goods for a family in need, but they would never be elected to an elder position within the church. They would always be the subjects of their religion, and in turn, of the men in charge. As a result, some women clung tightly to those areas within their lives where they still had some latitude, naming their children and expressing religious devotion. And we see that reflected in the practice of giving religiously inspired grace names. Again, such names were statements about the parents' attitudes and desired traits they wished to inspire in their children, again, usually girls. And though grace names were linguistically less harsh than their Old Testament predecessors, they were no less strident in their social and sexual commentary, particularly when it came to the burden of women to guard their virtue. For all the girls, given transcendent names, like patience, mercy, and delight. There were those fettered with names like vice, silence, 
and s- wait sub 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 submit submit that's her name oh that kind of leaves me with like the worst feeling her name is fucking submit <laughs> oh my god throat punch whoever named her yeah <laughs> it does indeed kate but it's an excellent example of the genesis of gender inequality and oppression whose legacy we fight to overcome even today to be fair i have come across a few men named mindwell but still Most of these names appeal to the sober aspects of a life of religious service. Believe in God, do what the Bible says, live your life accordingly, and you will have relief from the burdens of life, worry and toil in the afterlife. Rest on the seventh day and in the next world. You have accepted the word of God and his teachings. One should have faith, charity, obedience, and so on, all in the service of God. Other biblical and religion-based names were given as tribute to very personal joys and tragedies. The name Deliverance was given to a child, usually female, if, after a long or difficult labor, both mother and child survived a successful physical delivery, as well as deliverance from the inherent difficulties of childbirth. Whereas the name Benoni was given if a male child survived the labor, but the mother did not. In Hebrew, Benani means son of my sorrow, and in the Bible was the name given by a dying Rachel to her newborn son. All of that may seem terribly morbid, but back then, childbirth was incredibly dangerous, and death was always quite near. And so it was openly acknowledged and literally incorporated into their lives. Some names were also utilized to signal a parent's commitment to the social movements important to them. The name Temperance became a bit of a favorite among those that supported the anti-alcohol movement known as Temperance. One of the first social justice causes spearheaded by women, supported by and given traction within their evangelical revival communities. It steadily gained popularity through the 1800s, culminating in the passing of the 18th Amendment in 1919, establishing prohibition in the United States. Another name I come across frequently in New England cemeteries is free love. Yeah, free love. But I do not think it means what you think it means. Free love in the 18th and 19th century was not the same notion of free love of the 1960s. Although, in full disclosure, there were religious revivals that sparked utopian group marriage and or nudist communities in the mid to late 1800s in the Northeast, most famous of which was the Perfectionist Movement, led by John Humphrey Noyce, with its beginnings in Putney, Vermont, and later Oneida, New York. But that's a topic for another time. Originally, this concept of free love was similar to the concept of grace, as in, in all beneficence, God gives love to believers freely, 
and the believers are free to love him back. It reflects that secular, personal, face-to-face, as it were, connection between God and the believer. The name free love is meant to denote a genuine, open-hearted, helpful, and loving person. Still, taken out of context, it's kind of hilarious. So, what's in a name? For our subject, Relief Clues Wilcox Town, we can apply what we've learned here and tell a little about her as a person and more of the culture and times in which she lived. Born into a Baptist family in Rhode Island, she was a direct religious descendant of Roger Williams and the first major schism with the oppressive Massachusetts Bay Colony Puritans. Relief died in 1813 at the age of 45, so that puts her date of birth sometime around 1768, finding her less than a generation removed from the First Great Awakening and all the theocratic fallout that came with it. Within that context, we know her very name, Relief, was chosen to reflect her parents' renegade Baptist culture and their belief in a God who is gentle forgiving, and above all, in relationship with them personally. She came of age on the cusp of the Second Great Awakening, and saw her homeland and family break themselves away from the tyranny of their king, much as her Baptist ancestors had broken away from the tyranny of the Puritan Church. Relief in her extended family endured a lot, though nothing that was atypical for when and where they lived. The revolution took many of the men in Relief's immediate family into its service. And around the same time, she and her husband's entire extended family, the Wilcox Weeks Baker clan, moved from their ancestral home in Rhode Island to the wilds of Southern Vermont, becoming one of the original Euro-American families to homestead Halifax, Vermont. Halifax was an unpredictable place and family connections were a literal lifeline. They all built houses close to one another in the northeast part of town, and helped with each other's farms and families. Life was hard as crop difficulties, economic uncertainty, and infectious epidemics were ever-present. So, integral to their survival as a family and a community was the preservation of their transplanted culture by observing the religious and cultural practices their forebearers had developed long ago, a tradition reflected in the passing on of significant family names. Relief Clues Wilcox Town, with her first husband, William Wilcox Jr., would give birth to at least nine children in Halifax, six boys and three girls, one of which they named Relief. Relief Wilcox Lind, and that's R-E-L-E-A-F, so as not to be confused with her mother, R-E-L-I-E-F. There would also be a niece on the husband's side named Relief, R-E-L-E-A-F, and that name would continue in a somewhat altered form into the next generation, with a granddaughter named Leafy Wilcox Eiler, which is just so damn cute, I wanna scream into my hands. Knowing what we do about Relief's personal history and how it ties into the local and regional narrative 
it's easy to understand how her very name anchors her to the events of late 18th century New England. We can never really know if she became the gentle, nurturing spirit her parents and their Baptist culture hoped to inspire when they gave her that name. But, judging by the very unique and distinctly beautiful gravestone her children chose for her, I imagine she did. And so, a name is more than just what somebody was called by their friends and family. It can serve as a window into very personal, private parts of their lives. They speak to history, to hopes, to fears, to desires. And what a thing to share with the world, especially for the typically reticent New Englander. Always chokes me up a little. So maybe, the next time you see an old gravestone in your travels, you'll consider the person's name a little differently. Not just the wife of, the mother of, the daughter of, but think of the person that once was and all that went into making them who they were. What's in a name? Turns out, everything. And special thanks to Kate Butt for coming along on this trip and so freely offering her commentary. To Elizabeth Smith for inviting me to go to Halifax in the first place. To Jen Vinnell and Badger Studios for providing some of the musical accompaniment for this episode. And thank you for listening to this installment of The Secret Life of Death, Episode 3, Relief. Follow us on Facebook or visit the website at www.thesecretlifeofdeath.com.